1840, two American Quaker women named Lucretia Mott and Elizabeth Cady Stanton met at the World Anti-Slavery Convention in London. The pair began to chat and bond over their mutual reading of Mary Wollstonecraft. These two women later became the leaders of the Seneca Falls Convention in 1848, the first ever convention in the world dedicated to women's rights. Lucretia and Elizabeth were just two of the countless women who were inspired by the writings of Mary Wollstonecraft, who to many is one of the founding mothers of modern feminism. Mary was born on April 27, 1759, in London. She was the second oldest of seven children. While her grandfather had been a self-made man who had amassed an impressive amount of wealth, her father Edward did not inherit his sense of thrift. Edward sank his money into business ventures that constantly went awry. Mary started life in the upper middle class, but as she grew older, she experienced a downward economic spiral. The Wollstonecrafts were constantly forced to relocate to poorer and poorer areas throughout England. Her father Edward was an abusive drunk, who savagely beat Mary's mother Elizabeth. To stop her father's assaults, as a child, Mary used to sleep at her mother's door. She stopped him from entering and even shielded her mother with her own body in often unsuccessful attempts to protect her terrified mother. After years of abuse, Elizabeth grew more and more aloof and passive, often staying in bed all day, leaving Mary to look after her siblings. In the 18th century, boys were educated in philosophy, science, and classical languages. Girls, on the other hand, were taught about manners, sewing, and singing. Women were not meant to be intelligent, robust, and thoughtful individuals. Instead, they were to be demure, quiet, pleasant, in order to attract a husband. Thankfully, Mary met Jane, the daughter of a scholar and lecturer named John Arden. John Arden was an unusual man for his time, in that he taught his daughters the same curriculum as his sons. Wollstonecraft sat in on these lessons and had access to the Arden family's library, which she read as often as she could. Mary was then introduced to Fanny Blood, who had become her lifelong best friend. Mary's home life was exhausting, with a tyrant for a father and an emotionally distant mother. So, at 19, she decided that she would leave home and would seek not marriage for support, but employment, the chance to stand on her own two feet. In 1778, Mary began her working life as a companion for Sarah Dawson, an easily angered and ill widow. After spending two cheerless years with Dawson, Mary returned home to tend to her dying mother in 1780. After her mother passed away, Mary decided to move in with Fanny Blood's family. The two had become firm friends since being introduced during Mary's studies with the Arden family, and their bond of friendship only became stronger when they were living together. They began to dream of living independently as the ultimate dynamic duo. In one of her letters, Mary writes that to live with this friend, Fanny, is the height of my ambition, and indeed, it is the most rational wish I could make. But living together required a stable and generous income, which is a rare thing for a middle-class woman to attain. Together in 1783, Mary and Fanny moved to Newington Green in London to found their own school. Newington was the home to a group of people known as the Rational Dissenters, English Protestants who had broken off from the Church of England. While Mary identified as a follower of the Church of England and never changed her faith, the Dissenters were an open-minded bunch that welcomed all kinds of opinions. Many dissenters were committed to what would be considered significantly progressive opinions for their time. They'd argue for the separation of church and state and the rejection of church hierarchies. It is among the dissenters that Mary began to sharpen her knowledge of political philosophy under the influence of Richard Price, a radical political pamphleteer who had supported the American Revolution. Under Price's tutelage, Mary began to ascribe to republicanism. No, not the modern-day political party, thank God, 
But then a tradition of political thinking stretching back to ancient Rome, centering around the idea of freedom as an absence of arbitrary power. By 1784, Fanny had left for Lisbon to join her new husband and to hopefully improve for her ailing health. But in 1785, when Mary finally arrived to Lisbon to meet Fanny again, she had tragically died due to complications in childbirth. Mary was distraught at the death of her best friend and confidant. By the time that Mary had returned to Newington, the school she had founded was in disarray. Mary continued her work in the school for as long as she could, and wrote her first published work in order to make some money. It was entitled Thoughts on the Education of Daughters. She sold the rights to her book for a meager sum. While nowhere near as radical as her later works, in Thoughts, Mary stressed the necessity of women being educated and the importance of women being able to support themselves as adults so they could be self-sufficient and not reliant on others to provide for them, a constant theme throughout her work. After the publication of Thoughts in 1787, Mary disbanded her school and yet again searched for employment from the few available options open to her. She moved to Cork in Ireland to serve as a governess tutoring children of an aristocratic family, the Kingboroughs. She used her time as a governess to dedicate herself to reading and writing. Writing to one of her sisters, she reported that she was lost in a sea of thoughts. During her time as a governess, she wrote her first novel, Mary of Fiction. And if the title didn't give it away, it was heavily based upon her own experiences. The second work that she wrote during her time as a governess was entitled Original Stories from Real Life. Although a work of fiction aimed at children, there were some strong autobiographical elements. Children's literature was a burgeoning field at the time, but it usually explained lessons through fantastical tales. Mary subscribed to the empiricism of the philosopher John Locke in his very popular work, Some Thoughts Concerning Education, from 1683. Locke posited that we are born without any prior knowledge. We are born as blank slates. Everything we become is a result of our upbringing and education. Example and experience were what guided us, and thus Mary decided to write her work grounded firmly in reality. The book centers around Miss Mason, a tutor of two young girls whom she teaches through real-life examples. It might seem a little cheesy that Mary probably saw herself as Miss Mason to the girls she tutored, but she must have had a massive impact. One of the daughters she taught, Margaret, would later move to Italy with her lover, and in her new life she went by the name Miss Mason, a testament to Mary's impact throughout her life. Despite her effectiveness as a governess, she was fired by Lady Kingborough, whom she loathed. After being fired, Mary returned to London and began writing with the support of the publisher named Joseph Johnson, a radical dissenter who gave Mary a place to live and advanced her loans. By 1788, she published two of her works that she had written while a governess. By the end of 1788, Mary decided she wanted to become a fully-fledged author, in her own words, the first of a new genus. While Mary was not the first woman to publicly support herself through writing, most female writers faced excessive ridicule. So at the time, many women who wrote did so anonymously. Despite this, Mary resolved that she must be independent, and that freedom, even an uncertain freedom, is dear. Impressively, between 1788 and 1790, an industrious Mary wrote nearly 300 book reviews for academic journals. Up until 1790, Mary had carved a career as a writer, but had not yet written anything which garnered much attention. But by now, the French Revolution had begun. And by the 1st of November, 1790, Edmund Burke published his famous reflections on the revolution in France. Burke sternly believed that social and political progress could be achieved by approaching the matter slowly. Very slowly. And most importantly, adhering to traditions shared with our ancestors. Like many political thinkers during the Enlightenment, Burke entertained the idea of a social contract. 
The idea that political obligations are formed through a kind of mass bargain of each person in society with everyone else. However, Burke argued that this contract was not only between those who are living, but between those who are living, those who are dead, and those who are to be born. This led him to adopt a cautious conservatism. He believed that the French Revolution was being orchestrated by intellectuals, with very little hands-on experience, and in his view this could only result in disaster, saying that, in the groves of their academy, at the end of every vista, you see nothing but the gallows. Burke's reflections were widely read. By November 29th in the same year, May published a response, entitled Vindications of the Rights of Man, anonymously. In Vindications, May articulated her Republican views. She wished to abolish monarchy and hereditary privileges, as well as extend the franchise to both working men and women. She believed that both in the personal and the political, virtue was the prime goal of life. The happiness and self-improvement of all people, be they men or women, was to be the goal of politics, not the upholding of tradition and order, not the maximizing happiness, but virtue, virtue on an individual level. Mary believed God has made all things right. Distinctions of rank and class were unnatural and arbitrary at best. We have a kind of natural equality in our virtue of being human. Mary envisioned a society where people's worth was based upon their merit, not the accident of birth. Hard work, thrift, and discipline were to be promoted through a society based on commerce, resembling the writings of Adam Smith's The Wealth of Nations. Mary was disgusted by Burke's disdain for what he referred to as the dregs of the people. Instead of giving alms to the poor, she believed that ill-gotten gains of aristocrats should be given out to the poor, so they would be given the means to independence and self-advancement, to start their own farms and businesses, and in short, establish a dignified living which did not rely upon the good graces of aristocrats doling out land, but instead upon their own individual effort. Mary paints an image of Lockean farmers with small holdings, all respecting each other's natural rights. Vindication was Mary's first extensive intellectual work, and her efforts paid off immediately. While the first edition of Vindications was hastily prepared, it responded to Burke's cautious conservatism with fiery radicalism. Being only half the price of Burke's reflections, Vindication's first edition sold out quickly, causing Mary to agree to put her name on the second edition. The revelation that this pamphlet had been written by a woman shocked and appalled misogynist who believed that, of all the fields of knowledge, this one was exclusively male. Politics was for rational men, not emotional women. One reviewer commented that she assumed that a disguise of a man, showing just how alien women discussing politics was for the 18th century. The initial anonymity of vindications proved that, if given the chance on the platform, women could rival the foremost male intellects of the day. Building upon her ideas in the vindication of the rights of men, Mary developed them further in her most famous work, The Vindications of the Rights of Woman. Published in 1792, it is in this work that Mary solidified her reputation as a pivotal figure in the history of feminism. Vindications of the Rights of Woman begins with Mary discussing what makes human beings different from animals. God has ordained hierarchy of beings, with angels at the top and animals at the bottom. Took neatly between animal and angel was where humans were situated. According to Mary, animals act on instinct. They do not reflect and think, nor do they change. Their reactions are almost involuntary and hardwired into their psyche. Therefore, animals act in a uniform manner, with only small amounts of variation. But no two humans are the same, and why is this the case? Mary answers, 
In what does man's preeminence over the brute creation consist? The answer is as clear as that half is less than the whole. In reason. Mary defined reason as the simple power of improvement, or more properly speaking, the discerning of truth. Our humanity lies in our potentiality to learn, to improve, and to innovate. We may believe the goal of life should be the dignity of conscious virtue. This duty for self-improvement applies a set of natural God-given rights to all beings, to attempt to better themselves using reason which God gave us. Mary explained that there is no distinction between the sexes and their fundamental rights and obligations. Women, in the grand light of human creatures, who in common with men are placed on this earth to unfold their faculties. Men and women have a God-given duty to pursue their own moral excellence. To do so, they have to have a set of natural rights which ought to be honoured. By virtue of our potentiality for self-improvement, others must respect our rights. But something had gone horribly wrong over the course of history. Due to the unfounded prejudices of men, women found themselves in a situation where, for the most part, they are completely stunted in their quest for self-development and improvement. In the 18th century, women had few economic and legal rights, leaving them in a state of perpetual dependence upon the good graces of others, mainly men. Being a deeply religious person, Mary believes staunchly that God made all things right, and that social evils of the world were man-made. While the problems that face women spanned across a huge range of issues, Mary believes she identified the root cause of women's oppression, a lack of meaningful education. Women's education was nothing like their male counterparts. Male writers had long stressed women's lack of rationality and their unsuitability to abstract thought. Because of these unfounded prejudices, women were given an education in what Mary believed were frivolities such as singing, sewing, and polite conversation. Remember Mary reading John Locke, people being born as blank slates? Mary believed that many of our beliefs are reinforced by education. Women's education reinforced the notion that women were not made to take part in serious matters such as politics, commerce, or philosophy. Instead, they had to look pretty and be submissive to their husbands, and most importantly, have children. Mary believed that women were taught from infancy that beauty is a woman's scepter. The mind shapes itself to the body, and roaming around its gilt cage only seeks to adorn its prison. Women could be mothers and wives, but little else was allowed. Mary argued that what were called womanly virtues were artificially constructed by those in power to keep women subjugated. What makes women special is not their reproductive organs, but their capacity for reason, a trait which is genderless and belongs to all. Mary was one of the first thinkers to make the distinction between sex, the biological differences between men and women, and gender, the societal expectations and duties put upon each gender. Mary believed that equality between the sexes was an essential step in the progress of humanity. Without a robust public schooling system, most of children's education was handled within the family. If women were not sufficiently educated, they would pass down a similarly faulty education to their children, leading to stagnation and eventual decline. Mary explained that her main argument is built on the simple principle that if woman be not prepared by education to become the companion of man, she will stop the progress of knowledge and virtue, for truth must be common to all. Vindications of the Rights of Woman is a book with many ideas. So sadly, I have to limit myself to what I believe is the most important and interesting part of Mary's thought, her idea of independence. Applying the Republican principles she learned from Richard Price, Mary firmly believed that arbitrary power was the root of all political evils. She explained that to subjugate a rational being to the will of another 
is the most cruel and undue stretch of power. Our natureless rational beings entitles us to liberty, which in Wollstonecraft's words is the birthright of every man. Wollstonecraft believed in a society of equals, writing, I do not wish women to have power over men, but over themselves. Arbitrary power creates dependence and subordination, while freedom from arbitrary power cultivates independence and equality. Throughout Wollstonecraft's works, she often compares women's situation to slavery. Dominated individuals are not in control of their own destiny, and therefore cannot achieve a semblance of virtue, even in the best circumstances. In her view, marriage was scarcely better than slavery, and because of this, women would act poorly. Whilst they are absolutely dependent on their husbands, women would be cunning, mean, and selfish. There was no reason, she argued, to expect virtue from a slave. Wollstonecraft called independence the grand blessing of life and the basis of every virtue. According to her, there are two kinds of independence, independence of mind and civil independence. Independence of mind is the ability to think freely and unhindered by others. Mary asserted, it is the right use of reason alone which makes us independent of everything. This kind of independence can only be achieved by gaining a proper, rigorous education something most women had been denied for centuries. Mary said women were educated like a fanciful kind of half-being, taught to care about their looks, charm and manners instead of learning how to discern truth, formulate ideas and arguments, become resilient people. Mary explained that life would always be a struggle and virtue could only ever be achieved by hardy people willing to test their minds and spirits. Because men have increased the inferiority of women till they are almost sunk beneath the standard of rational creatures, in Mary's words, she believed women could not cultivate the independence of mind that virtue demands. Women could and would become rational, robust and independent beings when allowed to partake in an education that promoted resilience and free thinking, instead of dependence and frivolity. However lofty this idea of independence of mind, this would all be for naught if women do not have the means to act upon their convictions. Our beliefs and thoughts are important, but virtue is achieved through right action. At the time, women were forbidden to work most jobs, denied a proper education, excluded from politics, and were wholly dependent on their husbands. This made it impossible for them to live virtuous lives. They can't even act. They can only believe things in the abstract. They can never apply their principles. Mary declared that virtue can only flourish amongst equals. Among unequals, there can be no society. She lamented that many women thus waste away life the prey of discontent, might have practiced as physicians, regulated a farm, managed a shop, and stood erect supported by her own industry. To submit to any authority other than reason is degrading to our character, and thus all forms of arbitrary power must be abolished immediately. Mary said that women must be given the same range of choices as men, and as such she argued that for women's right to own property, as well as the ability to make contracts, in order to have the option to earn an income separate from their husbands. Mary also wished to see women play a role in the government, both as representatives and voters. Mary asked, who made man the exclusive judge if women partake with him the gift of reason? After writing the enormously successful Vindication of the Rights of Woman, Mary moved to Paris in 1792 to take advantage of the revolutionary intellectual milieu. There she met Gilbert Imlay, an American businessman and diplomat, the two began an intimate relationship. After hiding their relationship for a few months, the pair moved in together, but did not officially marry. Mary became pregnant, and eventually gave birth to her daughter, 
that she named Fanny, in honor of her old friend, who had given her so much. Emily lost interest once Fanny was born, though, began to retreat from Mary, eventually returning to London. Mary was abandoned and alone with her child. Distraught, she attempted to commit suicide on two separate occasions throughout 1795. Though she eventually recovered from melancholy, she eventually encountered William Godwin, the forefather of anarchism. The pair had met at a dinner party where Godwin had longed to meet Thomas Paine. However, Paine talked very little, and Mary talked quite a lot, and the pair didn't exactly leave with the best impressions of each other. But by 1796, Godwin and Mary became best friends, and eventually lovers. Marrying in 1797, despite Godwin's contempt for marriage, probably the most intellectual couple of their day, the pair got along extremely well, discussing their ideas and respectfully debating one another and influence each other's philosophies. Mary and Godwin had a child together in 1797, but due to medical complications and incompetence, Mary sadly died a few days later after the birth of her daughter. Her daughter was named Mary in her honour, and today we know her as Mary Shelley, the author of Frankenstein. Godwin was distraught at the death of his wife, and wrote to a friend that, I firmly believe there does not exist her equal in the world. It is one of the greatest tragedies in philosophy that Mary died at 38. While her vindications are both amazing achievements, who knows what she could have produced and achieved if she had lived a full life. William Godwin went on to write a biography of Mary, which took a warts and all type approach, discussing her illegitimate relations with Imlay and her suicide attempts. Godwin thought he was expressing his love and devotion to his beloved dead wife, but unwittingly, he painted a portrait of her which shocked his contemporaries. These scandals appalled readers, and Godwin's writings tarnished Mary's name and reputation. But this by no means stopped Mary's work from making an impression upon a wide berth of thinkers, including the aforementioned members of the Seneca Falls Convention and the suffragette movement. Mary's appeal stretches across ideologies and disciplines. With fans such as the anarchist Emma Goldman, the famous author Virginia Woolf, and the economist Amarta Sen. A good but obvious question to ask is why do we admire Mary? Well, she was a self-made woman who carved a path in the man's world. She was fearless, even as a child physically defending her mother from an abusive father. She possessed a wonderful intellect and the vindications of men and moon were at the time some of the most powerful and compelling arguments for reforming society through enlightenment principles. She was in all senses of the word a pioneer and the path that she physically and metaphorically tread laid down a track for countless others to follow. Mary Wollstonecraft was a true liberal who championed the rights of all but the domination of none, what we cherish today as equality. Thanks a for listening. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. And if you did, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you may listen to podcasts. Visit the website www.libertarianism.org to find more podcasts like this one. I hope to see you next time.